I'm Jim Minns and you're listening to Minimal. My guest this week is Ben Lee. Ben Lee, thank you so much for being with us on Minimal today. I really appreciate it, mate. Mate, I'm, I'm thrilled. Thank you. Uh, I just wanted to thank you for uh, accepting the invitation to be on the show. My pitch to you was that uh, a long time ago, over a decade, probably 15 years ago, uh, I was a lowly carting boy putting the commercials to wear in uh, on on air at, at radio station Osterio and Triple M Today FM. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yes. I forgot and, about that. And um, yeah. <laughs> there was an email one day saying, Ben Lee's in the boardroom and he wants to play a song for you guys. So the fire escapes were flooded with everybody just running up the stairs and everybody wanted to check it out. And you played um, uh, Catch My Disease uh, acoustically with a little with a little kid's... Um, one of those little tiny pianos that that children like to play with and it was it was really amazing and then you said you took requests and somebody said you know cigarettes will kill you and you you, you played it acoustically and it was you somehow managed to turn this boardroom this office environment into something akin to i guess standing at the, the tips of Uluru or you know on the edge of the grand canyon you were lost in the moment you made everyone else lose themselves in the moment to this day, one of the best performances I think I've ever experienced, and it was, wasn't even at a venue. My question is, after that long-winded introduction, how did you find yourself, how do you put yourself in that place? What's the path that led you to be able to put yourself in a place where you can transform a room like that? Well, um, thank you for the compliment. Um, I, I, I suppose I fundamentally am comfortable holding a guitar, singing a song. Like, in some ways that type of atmosphere is closer to why I got into music, which was to like play a song for a girl and try and get her like me in a living room than standing on a stage in front of thousands of people. There's something very natural about, you know, I'm writing songs at the moment and I'm very much like when someone comes over, I'm like, hey, can I play you a new song? Because that to me, whether it was like going downstairs and playing songs for my parents, um, that process of actually playing a song acoustically for someone is just sort of what the foundation is of what I do. So I, I never viewed it as sort of this other skill set that I had to develop. It's more just, I think it's in some ways, it's my strongest sort of asset, I guess. On that, your band, Noise Addict, uh, this is going back to the beginning, Noise Addict is starting up. You're, you're, I'm guessing you're, you know, the early days of Noise Addict, you're 10. You know, I know that we, we'll get to the, the part where you get... No, no, we, I think... I. No, I think really we, it all happened quite quickly. I think we really started at like 13 or 13 and a half, 14, and then we were like right out of the gates wow. like I mean, going for it. You know? th- the yeah. story as I'm reading is that Steve Pavlovich, famous tastemaker in Sydney, discovers you guys at 13. Um, uh, what? How, first of all, 13-year-old, your dreams come true. That was my dream as a 13-year-old. It still is my dream as a 37-year-old. You actually lived it. What does that do? Do you did you come from a conservative family that sort of rolled their eyes when this sort of opportunity was presented to you? What goes through the family and your mindset when a life changing situation like being discovered as a musician falls into your lap? Yeah, it's 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 hard to describe. I don't think anyone has like a playbook for that sort of thing in a family or in a childhood. Um, but you know, my family, yes, I mean, they were somewhat conservative and they were sort of like aspired to just middle-class values and, you know, having a house and summer holidays and all that. But, um, but you know, in some ways they were like a family of hustlers. Like my, um, my grandma, she got, 
she came to Australia when she was about, um, I think, 18 from Russia, a Russian immigrant. And by the time she was in her 30s, she was like running a T-shirt, a Bonds T-shirt factory and um, making house dresses and stuff like that. So, And, you know, my dad was in politics. And I think in some ways my family is sort of scrappy. And, um, and I think the way I started the band was very similarly. It was like I saw an opportunity and um, I, I ran for it. I think they didn't understand anything about the scene or the almost like I don't think they understood like the morals or the um, the ethics of coming from like underground music and punk rock and all the stuff I was interested in. But they knew that whatever it was I was interested in, I was doing it myself and I was making it happen. And so, you know, I think it's sort of, sort of like at a certain point with kids, you go, hey, <laughs> they're making this happen. Let's support it. It's you know? fantastic to have that level of support. But I was just watching some YouTube videos of you during that time in anticipation of our discussion. And you are so young. You're a baby. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, going on 30 years in the music uh, as a musician, as an artist now, uh, is there ever, I, I suppose this is a hypothetical question, do you ever go, oh, I wish I'd started later? I wish I had a little bit more normalcy before being thrusted upon the world? Or no, it, it, you, you've dealt with the cards that you dealt with and you, and you play the hand that you've got? Look, in some ways... Uh I mean, it's, you know, it's so hard to say what would have happened had life gone in other directions. Um, in some ways, probably technically, I might have been encouraged to uh, sort of perfect my craft more or sort of mature in certain ways to do with my craft. But I, I just think like, you know, without being too sort of fatalistic about it, I think there are times where like your destiny just comes and grabs you. And it's not appropriate to try and stop it. You know what I mean? Cool. Like, like, <laughs> like it's like falling in love or something like, yeah, you can stop it, <laughs> but is that how you want to live? That's a great answer. That time, <laughs> that time period when you're, you are discovered and you're uh, put upon the world and you're, you're thrown in, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a modest, it's modest fame. It's not, you know, it's like silver chair levels at that age in a similar sort of um, uh, scenario that you experienced. But you're put in, in front of uh, or you're exposed to people who are so influential that you would have known from your time studying their craft and, and that's the Thurston Moors and then eventually find yourself uh, in the realms of the Beastie Boys. This is peak their era and you're in the middle of it. What can you tell me about that time period in music uh, and what did it teach you as an artist from an early age? Yeah, I mean, it was sort of like, it was sort of like freaks to the front. Um, in some ways especially where you had artists like the Beastie Boys and Sonic Youth sort of curating their own culture in not a dissimilar way to sort of the way maybe um, Phoebe Bridges is doing now, where she started her own label and she's shepherding an artist. But, but she, you know, someone like her now is much more media savvy than I think actually the Beastie Boys or Sonic Youth were who really came from long careers sort of a long involvement in scenes underground. Um, but but it's it's a beautiful thing when that happens because, I mean, there are times when artists are, uh, they're like kingmakers, you know? It's weird. It's really weird. It's like, and not not every huge artist gets to be that. Like there's, there's massive artists now 
who don't have that power to bestow. Like John Mayer doesn't have that power. John Mayer doesn't like um, give people the tap and then they have their own career. You know what I mean? It's a it's a specific type of artist that is respected not just for the music they make, but for their cultural curation. And um, it's wild. And I think in much the same way I was saying that I didn't want to sort of look a gift horse in the mouth and, um, you know, step, like like sort of shoo away destiny. I think artists like, um, you know, like Mike D and Thurston Moore were aware of the opportunity that was in front of them, particularly post-Nirvana, um, where... I think the labels realized that they weren't going to be able to find the next Nirvana. Mm. Like, like that kind of thing doesn't come from within the industry. Mm. So it, they were reliant on artists to be tour guides to the underground. Mm. And I think people like Mike and Thurston really took on that. It's a responsibility too. And they said, yes, we're going to, we'll play that role. But at the deepest level, I think it's genuinely for the thrill of being music fans that people like that do that because I think Thurston, you know, I, I posted this photo yesterday. I remember, I saw Instagram it. Yeah. Before. Yeah. 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 And, and you see the smile on Thurston's face. He's helping and you with it. He's just having he, a blast. He's helping you with a guitar on stage and you're like a child yeah. <laughs> strumming away at a Gibson yeah. SG. Yeah. 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 Fantastic yeah, shot. Yeah. And like, and I think, but I think like, um, I think ultimately he's just getting a kick out yeah. of it. And that's really where all the best, scenes come from where people are sort of really following what makes them happy and what's ex- what excites them yeah um so so you know it's an interesting time and, and i and, and and not a day goes by where i don't feel that that early kind of thing and this is not at all to like compare myself in um in stature or, 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 or influence or anything like that or talent but those moments where artists are shepherded in, like um, like Joan Baez did that for Bob Dylan. And he remained eternally grateful to her, you know? And I think that is something that artists... I think Dre, Dr. Dre has done that for so many people. And I think uh, it's like it changes lives. Mm, mm. I mean, power changes lives mm. when it's used well, mm. you know? So a lot of a lot of what I learned from that is just to seize the opportunity to help others where you can because it, it you can't even imagine the the flow on effects that go on for for years and years absolutely and it's obviously uh you know the music industry not not the the artistry as uh, but the industry as as a as a business does have a bit of a reputation for exploitation and someone like yourself with a 30 year career who was cultivated in such a way that was sort of nourished and nurtured you do you do try and bring that to the forefront when you are out, I guessing, in the LA music scene, seeing new bands or seeing potentials and, and, and taking them under your wing? Is that something? I mean, even this interview, you know, like this was an unsolicited uh, message. Uh, is that is that you giving back? Yeah, I mean, I think of it in terms of, I don't think of it as taking anyone under my wing. I look at it as like what I learned from Sonic Youth and from the Beastie Boys was that the real juice is in the beginnings of things. That's where the magic is, right? And so if I hang out with Georgia Mac or, you know, Mole Rat or, you know, artists who are in these beginning flushes of their career, look, if I if I throw off a little advice, uh, a request, I'm happy to do that. But I look at it much more as like nourishing for me. Right. Because, 
you're also talking about artists that aren't yet shackled down with um the wounds that occur over years and the mortgages and the children and the babies and the, the divorces and the renovations and uh, and all the stuff that like is just reality of life yeah. you know but staying tapped in to what young people are making and the way young people are disrupting culture to me that is always like nourishing yeah during that time the band <clears throat> obviously breaks up but you come into your four uh foray uh, with your own obviously with your own uh, artistic solo stuff um what was cigarettes will kill you i don't want to dwell on your earlier stuff but just will cigarettes will kill you was that written as in your time in noise attic was it going to be a noise attic song no, that was later already. Like, like Noise Addict... Um, I mean, I made my first solo album. It came out before the first Noise Addict right. record. That was Grandpa Wood. Um, Breathing Tornadoes, which Cigarettes was, was, was my third solo mm. album. Um, Noise Addict had already been broken up for a couple of years. Right. Um, uh, no, and that, and that song was essentially written in the studio, too. It was written while I was recording Breathing Tornadoes. Um, that album, that whole album was really... Um, born of the influence and the struggles that I think I went through with Ed Buller, the producer, who he came from the British music scene. Like he'd produced suede and pulp and he'd been in the psychedelic furs. And British people have a really different attitude to hits. Um, They're not snobby about them. Like hits in British music are like, it's like top of the pops. It's seven inch culture. You know, it's, um, it's actually the mark of a great band or a great artist is having hits. Mm. It's not seen as, it's not seen as like, oh, you're a sellout if you have a hit. It's like, yeah, man, you proved yourself. It's like a football yeah, team. Yeah, notch on the belt. So I think that was the first time I'd ever worked with, especially coming out of Australia, which like, I mean, it's just like, I mean, Australia notoriously has had complicated relationships to being successful yeah. in the arts. Um, and, you know, uh, pre-Nirvana and pre-Ratcat basically and the Hummingbirds there wasn't even the idea that if you were like a Sydney indie pop band you were going to have chart success right. or anything like yeah. that so so for me it was like opening myself up to this way of thinking and Ed was really like why don't you want to be a pop star why don't you want to be a pop star and um, and I sensed in the question enough uh provocation like it was a stressful question for me to think about because i think it awoke my desires and my ambitions um but also my fears and i thought huh what if i live this out what if i try and be a pop star you know and that's really that whole record even the title breathing tornadoes is just about virility you know what i mean it's just about being ready to take on life and to build something and be mega you know, and that that was really my mission statement for that was really formed in, I guess, you know, just in working with Ed in that record. Such a great record. Uh, uh, last night I rewatched, um, uh, I think there were two versions of the film clip uh, made and uh, the famous one that played out here uh, a, a lot on shows like Recovery and Rage yeah. was the, there's the New York City one. The one where you're down in New York City yeah. and you're standing on street corners and you're singing to people. And I, and I know a lot of it, some of it was staged, but a lot of it wasn't. Um, can, what can yeah. you tell me about the film clip, the process of making it? Did, did it make, did, were you vulnerable in that scenario? Were you happy to do it? All these people, you know, it was, it was a, that was your, that was my introduction to you. And I'm sure it was a lot of people's introduction to yeah. you. Yeah. 
Well, it's sort of, it's funny because that was like this breakthrough record and I was sort of on modular, which was going through EMI. So I had like a bigger distribution, but essentially I, I, this is the thing that people find a hard time to understand. Like, like when you like listen to Daniel John's podcast and realized the way the machine was working around that band uh, and the support that was there in a sense, like with me, it was like just totally different was like, here's $11,000, make something. And I was just like, okay. And I just asked my friend Matthew, who had a camera, I was like, you want to make a video clip? And he was like, well, what do you want it to be about? I was like, well, I just had one image, like I'd like to be painted white with things projected on me. And I said, I really like how Bjork did this video clip at the time where she like over enunciated and it made you feel very strange. And I said, those are my ideas. And then he sort of came up with the rest of it and we just did it. Um, And... But that was sort of how I've always done things in a way. It was like, you got a cool idea, you make something weird with your friends and that's that's kind of is what it is. And you don't realize, you know, most video clips I'd made at that point got played on Rage at 3 a.m. a couple times and that was the end of it. You don't think of these things being these lasting sort of cultural touchstones that people will go back and watch before they interview Hell you yeah. 25 years oh, later. Well, even before, you know it, was, I mean? it's it, just it like, gets regularly played in our house because it's one of our songs that we play. So it's just, you know, the, the <laughs> yeah, click cool, comes cool, up, cool. you know. Uh, but it's, it is. It's iconic exactly. and what a choice you've done. Uh, you know, you just touched on it. Daniel Johns's, um podcast is such a fascinating, fantastic look at his rise, particularly when he talks about the early years. You're someone of a similar vintage who came into the same world. Um, I don't know if you if you know him on a personal level. I don't want you to speak outside of school, but is he some? We have like a hello. We have a hello relationship. But I used to talk shit about them because I saw them as like um, it was like a Nirvana Pearl Jam kind uh-huh. of thing. You know what I mean? Where like I I saw noise act as being the messy, sloppy, do it yourself thing, and then I saw. Silverchair's influence as like more kind of like um, arena or corporate or, you know, whatever I perceive, which is like so reductive and ridiculous. Mm. Um, But there was a philosophical difference in the way we approached. And we still is like in a sense that we're both pretty weird guys, but people generally feel like they know me and people generally feel like, whoa, who is that guy? He's like an alien. Yeah. <laughs> so they are, they're different approaches, you know? Mm. Um, and I've over the years, obviously found myself much less defensive and able to appreciate people that take different approaches and realizing that like, I mean, he's actually a truly subversive, strange artist mm. that I'm really grateful for his presence. Um, but, but yeah, I didn't relate to the way, um, the way they did their career but i was also probably just jealous sure because like i saw opportunities in front of them that i didn't have and i wasn't good enough to have like honestly i only got to the point where i could stand up in front of like say ten thousand people and give the audience a consistent experience where i sung in tune and it was all you know it's all good. that probably only started happening around awake is the new sleep for me okay and Daniel and Silverchair could do that from 14 or 15 years old. Yeah. So I think part of it was I was looking at it just going like, how do you do that? How do you make that big, consistent, tight sound? I still feel like I'm basically like, I, I don't know. I felt like I, my whole thing was so deconstructed. It was like just kind of growing up on Daniel Johnston and Liz Fair and, you know, like bedroom things that were like 
essentially self-destructive. Yeah. <laughs> they were kind of like, they were like non-durable goods. That's was my, that was my specialty. <laughs> I just think though that you two, um, uh, would would be the ultimate podcast you and you and discussion with him because it's such <laughs> an interesting parallel you're both plucked from childhood into the music industry and in many respects <clears throat> you you've probably had got the career that he desires you know the level of exposure has played uh... a, a level of overexposure may have played uh against daniel in a, in a lot of ways maybe but i think I, I actually think he operates he operates more in like an oscar wilde way where there's like um there's masks and those masks like david bowie or something and like those masks are part of like it's almost like the way an actor you know there's some actors who don't want the audience to know much about them because it'll stop the audience um getting lost in the work and i think some some of his specialty is the fact that you can't fully locate him Mm. you know what i mean whereas i've always just been a blabbermouth and um i've been too uh too open in some ways but but i don't know look there's always i remember sitting like with mandy moore uh in 2007 or 8 and 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 talking about what we were jealous of with each other's careers like there's <laughs> always the grass is always green of course it's always it's like like you look at any i mean i i've had i've had similar conversations with so many people like chris caraba from dashboard confessional who built this like he slowly built this like it was like a religious movement mm. You know, because he just like delivered in this like blue collar way mm. where the audience knew what they were getting and they'd come and they'd sing along. It was just gorgeous. You know? Yeah. Um, whereas my thing, my audience would come and go, well, what are we getting? OK, I don't know, but I'm, I'm, I'm in for the ride. <laughs> oh, you, slightly, slightly <laughs> modest there, uh, Ben. Um, but, but I just wanted to, you know, uh, for, you, you know progressing your career, you're, you, you are an enigmatic, enigmatic person. I mean, first and foremost... You're a musician. You've got 11 studio albums. You've dabbled in all sorts of genres. You started off as a punk rocker, obviously. Um, but you're not afraid to uh, verge off into different areas. And, you know, I watched uh, The Rage in Placid Lake recently in anticipation of our discussion. And it's such a frenetic, fast-paced film. I'm wondering if there was just so many scenes in it. And by the way, you were fantastic in it. It wasn't an obvious performance. It was someone who, was, who looked like they were very comfortable in what they were trying to, uh, what they were trying to convey. But it's such a f- really. I don't. I feel like I was not at all. But anyway, that's, so that's funny nice. because yeah, I, I didn't know what was going on. Very interesting, <laughs> you say that because I got the yeah. opposite. I'm watching it going. Okay, well, he's a natural. He's okay. built for this. Um, <laughs> and it, but I'm I'm wondering, speculating, is if it was such a fast paced, frenetic film. Every scene lasts only thirty seconds. It's you know dynamite, rapid paced editing. Uh, is that what is is the structure, the 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 process of filming? What what put you off acting? going forward or or is it just not something that an opportunity yeah, came no, up again I wouldn't say yeah I wouldn't say it put me off I, I would say that um I I've always wanted to work on like everything's timing you know everything's timing and when projects find you at the right time whether it's a song coming to me at the right time and I'm like oh yeah this idea I'm receptive to it or something collaborative and unusual or or a, a movie um, it's it's less about I don't really have that much attachment to like mediums I mean if I, I I could imagine acting again and I could I enjoy little moments where I get to do it here and there and um, but I, I wouldn't say put me off at all um, it just you know life happens how it happens like that 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 
movie and that role was so uniquely mine. Like, it was like, I had to play that. And I think Tony knew who wrote it and directed it. He was like, yeah, Benley has to play that role. Like, it just made sense. And that doesn't come along all the time. And because I'm not like a working actor who's just looking for jobs, like, I like to work on things where I'm the only one that could do them. You know what I mean? Like, there's no point competing for other people's work. You have a new album coming out in June called I'm Fun. Uh, the first single, Born for This Bullshit, came out a couple of months ago. Um, d- before, prior to making this, I read, I think I read it on your website or I read it in an article somewhere that you were asking people on Twitter to reference uh, the best uh, pieces of work from artists that you respected who had, who had surpassed the age of 40 and names like, uh, I think it was uh, Neil Young or, or, or Tom Waits and a bunch of names were listed off to you and you took all the names that were suggested to you and just listened over and over again to see what it was that, that, that these artists were talking about, you know, post the 40 decade. Um, how important is age to you in, in, in moving forward? Is it something that you're conscious of as an artist having a 30-year career or are you just like, no, no, uh, I, I, I'm musically built this way. This is how I operate. Uh, let's go forward. Uh, Nothing else I think matters. It's, yeah, I think it's sort of. Um, I think it's sort of a mixture. In that, when you look at great work in people's lives, it both is a product of the age they are, because that that means they've had experiences that like they've had successes and failures and wounds and different things that have led to them having some maturity or some wisdom, hopefully. But it's also this ageless thing of connecting to just the feeling of what a certain chord does to you or what a drum beat or, you know, like, so it can't be all one or the other. Like if, if you are, if you're overly obsessed with where you're at in your journey and your age, you end up making things that are quite self-conscious. And like you go, now it's time for me to make children's records. Now it's time for me to make my old man music. And you know what I mean? Um, but if you don't, you if you don't consider it at all, you end up being like Aerosmith or something where like every song is still sounds like Aerosmith being 21 years old, which respect. I mean, that's kind of what they do or ACDC or something, but that's not what I ever wanted to do. I wanted my music to be a document of my journey and my progress and everything. So so I kind of saw in all these artists that one of the things that I really responded to was that they were transparently in another chapter of their lives. They weren't pretending they weren't. Whether it was that they'd been through divorces or been through getting dropped from labels or going in and out of fashion, they, they like, they owned that. They weren't pretending it was their first rodeo, but they also weren't cynical. They showed up with the same intensity that I had to show up on the Selena's stage supporting Sonic Youth in 1993. That it's like, you got to show up and fight for your life and win the crowd over. And the song has to do its job, you know? So, so I just think of it as like, I really learned that it had to be this balance of both. Can I just ask you a, a question? Opening up for um, Sonic Youth at Salinas when you're 13 years old, do you sleep much the night before that happens? If you can remember. Nah, man. I, I always like have had, you know, it's like, um, I think how much I care um, and how, 
it's not just ambition. It's not ambition to be successful, but it's the sense that I've always had a clean understanding that the doors of opportunity like open and close. And when it's there in front of you and you know it's there in front of you, um, it's harrowing. It's harrowing, man, you know, because it's like it's like being an athlete. It's like you kind of know that your future is going to be determined by what happens in those days. So yeah. it's even worse than not sleeping. It's like the weight of the weight of the person you want to become. Oh my god, is like on your shoulders. And I I can generally say, in the macro, I have fulfilled those moments. In the in the larger scheme of things, I have I have shown up and delivered when I needed to. On the micro, I think I actually haven't. I think I've choked quite a lot, like doing things like Leno and Letterman. Like I've, I've never given a great TV performance in, in, in a career where I've had many opportunities to get on large platforms. And, you know, I've never had that performance that like you can point to and go, remember when, like, you know, remember when Radiohead killed when Kid A came out on SNL? Yeah. That was like, a moment that they step up and they seized it. I've never done that, but I I see victory in the future. You know, like I still feel that I always viewed this as a long journey. And I think dealing with my anxiety of how much I care mm. and managing that expectation is like a lifelong journey. And it's leading me to be able to seize those moments better. So I look at people like, Warren Zevon and Leonard Cohen and Tom Waits and people who've like come into themselves in their 60s and stuff. And I really always wanted that kind of a career. So I try not to be too hard on myself about having choked in my 20s or 30s or 40s and go, there's time, you know, there's time. Iconic performances, they sometimes take a lifetime to be prepared for. So you never feel like all eyes are on me. I have to uh, make sure I don't trip up in this regard. Otherwise, it won't fit my lifetime narrative. Well, I, I do, but I also comfort myself with going that, knowing that my actual life plan doesn't mean it has to happen tonight. Mm. Like I've had gigs where like the person was at the gig the person mm-hmm. that could change your mm-hmm. life. You know what I mean? I do. Like, I've had like those I did gigs. A gig. <laughs> yeah. Like I did a gig where like Madonna was there. Wow. I've done gigs like that, that like could, had they gone another way, had they been more than just serviceable, they could have completely changed my career, yeah. my narrative. Um, and those moments didn't really happen for me, but, but I had other moments. I've made recordings that did. Yeah. That's the other thing. And I've done small gigs that and I've done other weird things that have done that like like you know I've done stuff like um played at someone's house because there was a guitar there and someone was like oh my god hi I'm uh, I was standing in the back and you know and and so it's like you almost there's an arrogance I think if you assume that you know which those moments are too clearly because it's very easy to say yeah Letterman would be one or the Arias or whatever but the reality is I think when with an artist like me people are watching the larger arc mm. of the narrative of my career much so than, the, than they're watching the details. And do you think people are, you know, you're, you put this psychological pressure on yourself because, you, you, you know, you appear on a Letterman and, you know, the famous narrative of, well, that's the stage the Beatles played one show and hit millions of people. Yeah. You are in yeah. the music industry. This is your moment. But it's like, 
you can't would you ever get that since this is a ridiculous comparison to make and yet here i am making it but that's why that's coming back to the thing of like looking at how other artists had the support system like like when i played letterman when catch my disease came out he loved that song and he personally asked for to, for to be booked on that for me to be booked on it and i got a group of my friends together half of them couldn't sing because i thought it'd be fun and i invited them backstage and we jammed it out backstage and then I threw them up on stage on Letterman as backing singers. And I just think like that's the moment where a manager or a label or someone could have stepped in and said, you know what, maybe work with a more controlled set of circumstances under this high pressure situation. But I didn't know about that. I just went with my enthusiasm. Yeah. You know? No, good for you. I love it. Um, just wrapping up, how has the pandemic affected you as a, as a touring musician, as a, as a working artist? Is, has it made you more uh, introspective to work on uh, recordings or are you just, you know, frothing at the bit to get up on stage again? Um, yeah, I love performing. Um, I... I I think one of the beautiful things about having a long career is that you tend not to, or I tend not to rely on my sense of knowing what's going to happen next because it's been proven wrong so many times. So I view something like a worldwide pandemic the same way I view the appearance of Napster, the same way I view... um, boy bands coming in and and uh and wiping out grunge wow <laughs> the same way of you bjork um putting out electronic music and suddenly it not being cool to have guitars anymore yeah. the same way you know over and over you've lived it like yeah. if you have a long career you live through things going away that appears to be not the way you want them to go and so i don't spend a whole lot of time thinking oh i wish it was another way i just think what can i do you know what can i do now and um, and I'm writing songs, you know, and I'm making videos and I'm doing what I can do. And uh, that is where I like to put my energy. Ben, your new album, I'm Fun, is out in June. Uh, we're looking forward to it. Uh, I love you and I thank you so much for being on my podcast. Right on, man. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me.